Good morning, church. If you have a copy of his word, if you please open it up to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, which is the first book in the New Testament. It is a privilege to be here with you this morning, Uh, and of course to our guests, a very special welcome to you. Our message series is called Strong Foundations, which examines some powerful yet simple truths of God that are taught in our Brook Hills Kids Ministry that serve as the bedrock of our faith in Him no matter your age. So this morning we have another one from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, in a similar pattern to the previous week. Uh, Let's listen in as one of our Brook Hills Kids faith trainers, Payne McDowell, recites this passage for us from memory. So please watch the video with me. Hello, I'm Payne McDowell, and this is Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Yeah, how about that, right? Great job, Payne. In case you're feeling just a little bit overwhelmed about the thought of memorizing these five verses, just like I am sometimes, let me convict all of us just a little bit more. Our second graders memorize this. They do it pretty easily. They recite it over and over throughout the week at home to their parents, and then they come on Sunday mornings, and then they recite those to us, and they get a dum-dum lollipop when they recite it to us. I don't have dum-dums for you this morning, but even if you did memorize it, uh, we do have the opportunity to dive just a little bit deeper into these verses in our message this morning. But before we dive in with both feet, just a little bit about me. My uh, wife and I have been members here for uh, just over 18 years. We have three children, grades 6, 10, and a college sophomore. We teach in a few different places across our church. Uh, We love co-teaching in our adult Wednesday night small group. I really enjoy teaching and serving on the elder council. All these opportunities have given me such joy. But specifically, I love teaching at Brook Hills Kids. Scott James, who uh, taught the message last week, he mentioned last week that he would be more comfortable in this room if it was filled with fifth graders. So if I'm being truthful, I would honestly be a whole lot more comfortable if all of you were seven-year-olds. For my wife and me, though, teaching in Brook Hills Kids year after year continues to be such a joy and such a blessing to us. Pastor John and Ms. Phyllis would want me to add on to that. You, too, can have this joy of teaching in Brook Hills Kids. Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, a.m. the first service, second service, this joy can be yours That's jtice at brookhills.org. But that's what this sermon series is all about, right? Um, The foundational biblical truths taught in Brook Hills Kids that can serve to strengthen all of our faiths, no matter our age. As I said, I have three children, and just like all kids, uh, they're most certainly good at asking for things. Especially when they were younger, my children, maybe yours too, kept no secrets when it came to what they wanted or what they needed. And we also know as parents that there are some aisles at the grocery store you just don't walk down because you know what's coming from the kids, right? The candy aisle, the toy aisle, the cookie aisle. They ask, and they're good at asking. But very quickly, their asking 
can turn into begging and pleading and pestering, right? And generally speaking, asking, they're asking ends in frustration on one side or both sides. And anyone who has raised children also probably knows the following phrase relating to kids and asking. Maybe you've said this too as parents. I'll start it. You finish this. See if, see if you know this one. When they complain about what they get, this is what you say. You get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. Very good. You know this one too. If not, maybe you can add that to your parent response repertoire. But let's start the message today with a question. Is that all that this passage from Matthew 7 is about? Are these verses really just about asking for and getting things from God? A question I love to ask when I'm studying the Bible is, why is this in there? Like, why, why did God decide to put it in there and say it the way that he said it, right? We know that there's purpose behind every word, every phrase. So is Matthew simply saying, ask, and you'll get it? Like a genie in the bottle arrangement, right? Or on the far other end of the spectrum, do we have a God who is disconnected from our needs? And it's more of a, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit arrangement. What about different seasons of seeking God? Are we supposed to seek God in all seasons? In joy, in heartache, during the mundane? Or what about, what happens when God is silent as we seek him. So I believe that there's a message to all of us from this passage here this morning. So we're going to look at what I'm describing as three different seasons of seeking God. These three seasons might, at any one time, any day of the week, describe any one person in this room. And let's jump right in. The first season of seeking God is this, seeking God in a season of joy. Seeking God in a season of joy. These verses from Matthew 7 are the words of Jesus. And he's talking about seeking God in prayer. Jesus' favorite prayers seem to be the Psalms. We see it all over the Gospels, where Jesus actually uses the Psalms as prayers. So it's not a stretch to suppose that when Jesus himself asked, sought, and knocked in communicating with and depending on the Father, especially on the cross, he used the Psalms as blueprints for prayer. So let's go to Psalm 16. Go ahead and write that down in your notes. Psalm 16 so we can see this. And let's listen in on David's prayers to God during a season of joy. And notice what it sounds like for David to ask, seek, and knock. Starting in verse 9, Psalm 16, 9 through 11. You see it on the screen. Therefore my heart is glad... And my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. And your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. So how's David feeling? Well, we see it right there. Verse 9, he says he's glad. He's resting. He's secure. Verse 10, he says, I'm feeling faithful. Verse 11, he's feeling full of life. He has abundant joy. He's experiencing eternal pleasures. Even prior to this, in verse 6, just look back just a couple verses. David says, things are falling in place and just are falling into just the right places. 
He looks in the future and he sees good things. He looks ahead and he sees a beautiful inheritance. You know, there are times in our lives when we can say that we feel like the boundary lines are falling in pleasant places for us. Just as David describes in verse 6, his asking and seeking and knocking is resulting in his own joy. So there are two things that we can learn from David about how he asks, seeks, and knocks during the season of joy. First, and you have it in your notes, joy is directly downstream from contentment, confidence, and rest in the Lord's promises. So we know from verses 9 through 11 how David is feeling, but why? Look just before that. Look at verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, he says, I said to the Lord. He's talking to. He's seeking God. He's communicating with God. Verse 3 and 4, we see a David who is solely committed to the Lord. And he even notes the actions of those that worship other gods. He says, I'm not going to join in with those that disgrace your name. He's committed. Verse 5, we see a David who knows that he's not in control. He tells them, Lord, you are my portion. You are my cup of blessing. You hold my future. When he looks in the future, he feels blessed. As David seeks the Lord in prayer, David is content that God is calling the shots, and that brings him joy. So point number two is this, and don't miss the connection to joy. Contentment, confidence, and rest in the Lord are downstream of being reminded of his promises. So we receive joy from having contentment, confidence, and rest in the Lord. But contentment, confidence, and rest in the Lord come from being reminded of his promises. Matthew 7 Jesus' teachings are directly connected to the joy that David is speaking about in Psalm 16. As he is asking, seeking, and knocking in pursuit of God, he's also reminding himself, he's being reminded of the promises of God. He says, God, in verse 2, you promise me that you only know how to give good things. Verse 5, you promise me that as long as you are my portion and my cup, I will be blessed by the promises of your presence. Verse 7, you promise to guide me and give me counsel. Verse 10, you promise to never leave me. He's telling God about his promises, and he's taking great joy in those promises. One of my friends in college had a car that we affectionately referred to as the tin can. Uh, This car worked generally speaking. It was dull, aluminum foil color Buick, had red cloth interior, lots of miles, but it still ran. AC was spotty. Um, You couldn't put the back window down because it wasn't going to go back up again. Had a weird smell. But it took us many places very successfully. And one random fact about this car is that the reverse gear didn't work. So it could not go backwards with any measure of power whatsoever. So we always tried to park on a hill Um, so that the car was leaning backwards, so that when it was time to leave, we would just put it in neutral and let it roll back, and then we would be on our way. There were a few times when we misread the incline and and, uh, when we parked, and we got in some pretty sticky situations. But if this season of seeking God is represented by the tin can, then for David, 
The tin can is moving 70 miles an hour down I-65. The windows are open. Uh, you got a full tank of gas. You're singing along to some 90s rock song on the radio. His ride is joyful because he's asking, seeking, and knocking in pursuit of God, and he's being reminded of God's promises. And there are those times when we seek God in life's moments, and it's a little bit easier to see God's faithfulness, that he never leaves us, that he gives us wisdom, maybe in, maybe in parenting, maybe in work, maybe in our marriages, maybe in finances. Times when, like David, we can say, yes, the, the boundaries are falling in pleasant places for me right now. I can remember and I can see the promises of God. I can see his faithfulness clearly. But what about this, though? What about those times, all those times I had to push the tin can out of the parking spot <laughs> because the incline just wasn't enough to get us there? And our ride of joy became more like a strenuous push. What about when his promises in our lives seem a little bit f- further than than I just described. That brings us to our season number two. Seeking God in a season of the everyday. Season of the everyday. So how do we ask, seek, knock in our everyday lives? What, what the everyday looks like for you and for me might be a little bit different, right? But generally speaking, this is what I mean. What I mean is waking up after a night's rest, you eat breakfast, you read the Bible, you go to work or school or activity, take care of kids, you eat lunch, You go back to work or school or activity, you head home, you eat dinner, you go to a gathering of some kind, maybe an activity of some kind, you go to sleep for the night, then rinse, repeat, right? We all have sort of a routine or a pattern that we can point to that we fall into, right? Something that we can say, in general, this is kind of my everyday. And with that routine can come what we might call staleness or getting stagnant in the promises of God. I recently read an article that outlines how much time we spend over the course of a lifetime in the everyday, the things that we do just because we're a part of the living. According to the CDC, U.S. Center for Labor Statistics and Forbes, assuming a lifespan of 80 years, you and I will spend 28 of those 80 years sleeping. We'll spend four years of those 80 years eating few of us a little bit more than that. We'll spend 15 years working. We'll spend seven years doing household chores, cooking, cleaning, laundry, maybe a few of us a bit less than that. We'll spend seven years on the internet or on our phone, seven of the 80 years. That seems a little low, actually. But the question I have for you is this, what does it look like for you to pursue God in the everyday season of your life? When promises seem a little bit further away, things may be a bit stale and you aren't feeling joy. So I'll illustrate this point with a story, kind of continues on the driving analogy. Um, You haven't lived until you've taught a teenager to drive. It's both the scariest, most thrilling experience one can have. My wife and I have taught uh, two, uh, one of which my sophomore age son, much to the pleasure of my insurance agent, just got his official license four days ago. (laughs) But I will say both of my driving age children are excellent drivers, but everybody knows that that doesn't happen overnight. You have to start small. 
right? You start by mastering the empty parking lots and then moving into your neighborhood and maybe, maybe expanding to Valleydale Road or Highway 119. You teach them to merge, uh, make sure they know all the street signs, all of the rules of driving, all of those things. But, but before I allowed each child even to put the keys in the ignition of the car for the very first time and sit behind the wheel, I had two rules that I would make them recite back to me. So in true uh, Brook Hills Kids style, I'd like for you to recite them back to me. Um, so here they are. Repeat after me. This is the audience participation portion of our program. So you ready? Rule number one, I will only listen to one voice. I was so afraid you wouldn't do it. Thank you. Okay. Rule number one is I'll only listen to one voice. Rule number two, that voice is always right. If you've ever taught a child to drive, you know why these two rules are so important. They need to not only exist, but they need to be prominent in the minds of the student driver, right? And it's for two reasons. One, 15-year-olds are bent toward distraction, Maybe it's another voice in the car. Maybe it's a voice in their head. I don't know. But you learn quickly. A 15-year-old can get distracted over just about anything, a bird, a motorcycle, a song. Um, and in doing so, they can miss what's most important, that being other objects around them. So the student driver needs to focus on one voice. That voice is mine as the driving teacher. And secondly... Rule number two, that voice is always right. Not only are they distractible, you also learn that 15-year-olds love to argue, and they debate about everything you say as the driving teacher. With due respect to the 15-year-olds in the room, they think they're right. It's not just that they're being difficult. They honestly think that they're right all the time. But when you're driving, that's not the time to have a long, drawn-out conversation about who is right and who is wrong, or whether you're going too fast, or whether you're following too closely, or whether you're staying in your lane, or what you meant to do, right? If you're about to embark on teaching your teen to drive, take my advice and let me save you some heartache. You're going to want these rules well in place before you start teaching them to drive, especially before you hit the holy grail of driving Highway 280. I'll never forget uh, when I took my then 15-year-old daughter, Anna, out on 280 for the very first time. Leading up to this experience, I gave her my best Highway 280 pep, pep talk I could. I told her, I said, when you're turning out onto Highway 280 out of our neighborhood and you make a decision to go, go. Like fully commit, go. Don't linger, don't wait, go. So I share this with her and she hears me and she says, I got it, Dad, right, confidently. So we're almost to the intersection. We pull up to turn right onto 280. We wait about 30 seconds or so for an opening, and then there it is. We find one, like a gift from heaven. Um, an opening the size of 10 Mack trucks before us, and I say calmly, okay, go for it, babe. And she does. And she makes the turn, proceeds out on the Highway 280 at exactly four miles per hour. And I'm certain at this point that we are about to be rear-ended into oblivion, but I can't let that show, so I calmly say to her, hit the gas, dear, and nothing happens. She's clearly distracted. So I ramp up my response just a little bit, and I say, hit the gas, dear, 
Still nothing changes, and I realize she's not listening to me at all. She's focused on something else. And at this point, traffic is approaching from behind us at 240 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, in my innermost guttural yell, I yell, go, honey. And she floors it. We take off Mach 6 down Highway 280. Her blinker is still on the whole way. She starts yelling back at me, stop yelling at me, and now I'm yelling at her, I'm not yelling, slow down, and then she says, but you told me to go. In exchange for telling that story, she made me promise to clarify with all of you that she is indeed an excellent driver. She was just learning, as we all do, but let me land the plane with these two points about the everyday. What if seeking God in the everyday is about reminding ourselves through Scripture two things? And you have this in your notes. First, we need to tune in to one voice. Tune in to one voice. And second, have confidence that his voice is always right. In John 15 The Bible describes these two rules in the context of abiding in the ESV translation or remaining in the CSB. Let's turn to John 15 and look at this for a minute. It's my favorite analogy taught by Jesus in the Bible. You're going to write that chapter down, John 15, so you can go back and look at it. In a simple illustration, the Bible paints a picture of what it looks like to stay connected to our Father. So let's look at it together. What does it look like to seek God through Christ in the everyday. Well, Jesus describes in John 15 the relationship between a vine, a branch, and its fruit. So look at the words of Jesus in verse 4. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Then he goes on, he continues in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you can do nothing without me. Ask, seek, and knock during seasons of the everyday allow us to hear one voice and allow us to have confidence that that voice is always right and it can be trusted. God will use your time in prayer, time spent in scripture and the word, In your small group, a worship service, he uses these things to remind us that that his promises and his words are true. So our job in the everyday can be hard, but it's really a simple analogy. Stay connected to the vine. In his book, Every Moment Holy, Douglas McKelvey describes exactly this, how everyday moments can also be viewed as holy moments. And he writes beautiful liturgies for the occasions that may litter our every day. I highly suggest that you order a copy of this book if you don't have it. He writes liturgies on everyday topics such as paying the bills, conducting home repairs, planting flowers, watching the sunset, going to school, welcoming a new pet, putting on a yard sale, even this one, changing diapers, Actually, there's a part one and a part two to that one. (laughs) But what if um, that's part of the point of ask, seek, knock in Matthew chapter 7? What if we're supposed to seek the Lord in those everyday moments 
by simply staying connected to the vine. That every day is not supposed to be disconnected from seeking him. We listen to one voice, and we have confidence knowing that that voice is always right. But what about, Chris, what if we aren't necessarily in joy in Christ, and we would definitely not describe ourselves as in the everyday? Neither of those is where I am at all. In 1987, the famous boxer Mike Tyson was once asked about what his plan was for an upcoming fight. Tyson responded with his famous quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And no, that was not the fight in which he famously bit Evander Holyfield's ear. Maybe he needed a better plan than that. That was 10 years later. But Tyson's point stands. Maybe your season is not joy and it's not the everyday. Maybe your season is desperation. You had a plan and then the punch came. The tin can is completely broken down on the side of the road, and it's not just that your journey has stopped, it's that you have no hope of moving forward. You can't see it. That brings us to the last of our three seasons of pursuing God. Seeking season, seeking God in a season of desperation. Flip back to Matthew chapter 7. Let's look at a few things about these verses so that we can see what it looks like to seek God in a season of desperation. We don't have to go beyond these verses to see how God invites us to pursue him desperately. When we look at these verses from Matthew 7, ask, seek, knock, are more literally translated as always be asking, always be seeking, always be knocking. Their original tense, verb tense, implies that there's a persistence that Jesus is inviting us to. When he says these words, he's saying, don't stop asking me. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. He literally says, pester me when you're desperate. Seek me. Also, even when we look at the words themselves, there's a buildup even within these three words with their meanings, asking. Think about it. Asking, when you ask somebody for something, you're making a request known. Right? But seeking... There's a request that's known, but there's an action that accompanies that request. You're looking for it, right? You're looking and it's active. But knocking? Knocking is making a request known, also looking for it with action, but there's a persistence and a perseverance to knocking, right? There's an expectation of a response from the person on the other side of the door. Do you see the buildup of the word intensity there? Right? So what's that message to us in Matthew chapter 7? Jesus is giving us a template for desperate prayer. He's saying, when you're desperate, don't stop seeking me. And I bet if, if I asked for a show of hands, I would see hands go up across this room that this third season maybe best describes the way in which you're seeking God right now. I'm seeking for the, or I'm pleading for the life of a loved one. I'm begging God to save my marriage. I'm pleading for healing after a diagnosis, abuse, job loss, addiction, grief, anxiety, mental illness. The list goes on and on and on. And you would say also, you would say, Chris, just a few minutes ago, you read in Matthew 7 verse 11 that he promises only to give good things. 
How is that possible? I'm trying to reconcile that truth in verse 11 with the truth that I get to see and live every day. If I'm being honest, it's not hitting me like you're telling me that it should. I'm, I'm asking for bread, but I'm getting a stone. And I'm asking for fish, but I'm getting a snake. So, church, is there space in the gospel to pursue God in that season of desperation? And the answer is absolutely yes. And that's our next point. There is more than enough space in the gospel to desperately pursue God. Even David, the same author that we just read in Psalm 16 and we used as our example of joy, prayed desperately. Another Psalm of David, Psalm 38. Write that down so you can come back to it. Psalm 38, we're going to pull out just a couple verses here. It's the exact opposite of what we just saw in Psalm 16. Same guy, two very different seasons of seeking and asking. Listen to these groanings to God from Psalm 38, verse 3. There's no soundness in my body. There's no health in my bones. Verse four, my burdens are too heavy for me to bear. Verse seven, my insides are full of burning pain. There's no soundness in my body. Verse eight, I'm faint and I'm severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. Do you hear the desperation? David goes on to describe more and more about his pain and anguish. He pleads for God, don't abandon me. He tells God, hurry up and help me. Can you relate to these words? Many of you know one of our church families, the Dean family, Logan and Catherine Dean, one-year-old son, Josiah. Logan began his battle with cancer in 2017, started off as stage two came back as stage four about two years later. As a couple, they walked through out-of-state clinical trials, various treatments, major surgeries. They remained so hopeful for new drugs and breakthroughs throughout their cancer journey. Logan, at just 32 years old, passed away in November of 22. But back in September of 21, during their cancer journey, my small group was studying and reading from the book of Esther, chapter five, Catherine and I had worked professionally together, and I had come to know her and Logan as well as their story over that time also. So I asked Catherine two years ago, I said, write me any thoughts that come to mind when it comes to seeking God through this horrible trial. And here's what she wrote for me to read to my small group. Through the past five years, we've truly learned that joy and sorrow can coexist. We've had such devastating news like cancer times three, miscarriage times two, but we've also had joyous news as well like baby Dean coming in December. We live our lives in three-month increments going from scan to scan. We can't make long-term commitments as we don't know what our life will look like just months down the road. As one that likes control, it's been difficult to learn just how little control we have in life. This third time around, we are so weary We are weary and so worn down. It's been absolutely terrible. It'd be nice to sit and wallow in misery, which we do occasionally, but we don't allow ourselves to stay there for too long. We've begged the Lord to take this from us. We've asked, why us? Why can't our lives be normal? Why can't our biggest worries be what those 
what others around us are dealing with. The list of whys goes on and on, believe me. But I take such comfort knowing that the Lord has been with us every step of this awful journey. He is intimately involved even when I don't see him or feel him in the moment. The Lord has provided little glimpses of how he's using this for his glory. I often say that I can't wait to see the big picture, but I know that only comes on the other side of heaven, so I'll do my best to wait. How is God using this? Why is this our story? Oh, I hope it's brought others to know the Lord. What an amazing testimony of pursuing God. Asking, seeking, knocking, but also begging, pleading, and pestering during an unimaginable season of grief and desperation. Just a few weeks ago when I spoke to Catherine to ask her if I could use her words from two years ago in the teaching this morning, and she said this in response, absolutely. What I said two years ago, I can say again even now after Logan's death, God is not done using this story for his glory. And you don't have to go far in this church to find people with stories of seeking God in desperate seasons. And the message from Matthew 7 is this, don't stop seeking. Because, and this is the next point in your notes, because we serve a God whose heart is inclined toward the desperate. We see it here, just even in the relationship that Jesus decides to use to describe our asking, seeking, and knocking in Matthew 7. It gives us insight into the heart of God for his children when they're desperate. Think about it. The closest comparison that Jesus can think of to help us understand how much their father cares for us in moments of desperation is the perfect relationship between a father and a son. Not an earthly one, a perfect one. And he also chooses an illustration that includes such a basic need, food. The son needs bread and fish. He's hungry. He's asking his dad for food. That's desperation. And Jesus is saying along with this, he's saying, look, you're human and you have sin and even you want and will provide what's best for your son. You won't do this perfectly, but I will. I promise to hear you and I promise to respond. You know, when we look in the Bible, we don't see a genie in a bottle, nature to God's character. On the contrary, we see a God who is sovereign over our steps, who is never caught off guard or by surprise, who sees the big picture of our lives and his glory in a way that exceeds our capacity. We can point to scripture after scripture to show that the Lord's ways are not our ways, our thoughts are not his thoughts, our will is not his will. Rather than a genie in a bottle, we have a sovereign God. And we can summarize these three seasons here by saying what these verses from Matthew 7 do and don't mean. So you may want to jot a few of these notes down. First, what they don't mean is this. These verses from Matthew 7 don't mean if I ask, seek, and knock, I'm going to get what I want because I'm the judge of what's best for me. And I won't ever get anything that resembles a stone or a snake. That's not what these verses mean. 
What these verses do mean is this. God will never ignore my asking, seeking, and knocking. He hears me, and he's with me. And God may allow things in my life that resemble a stone or a snake for my good and for his glory. God's picture of what's best is bigger than mine. So, Brook Hills, let me close out our time together with two applications from Scripture. First, you have it in your notes. These verses remind us that no matter our season of need, when God's children pursue him, God responds with what's best for his children and his glory. Always. Whether in joy, in the everyday, in desperation, we can count on him to respond with what's best. And the second application point is this. These verses remind us that our greatest need has already been provided for in Christ. Believers know that the act of seeking God for forgiveness of our sins, that's the ultimate act of desperation. In Christ, when we ask, seek, and knock, and we look to him for the forgiveness of our sins, The Bible says that he is good and he is just to forgive us. And we don't need to worry about the provision of grace in our lives because it's a promise that we can take great joy in. Look at the promises of God in Matthew 7. He says, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened to you. Those are guaranteed outcomes for requests for forgiveness that are made of the Lord. These promises will result in joy. Our eternal life is promised when we ask, seek, and knock for forgiveness. So what truths can we keep in our hearts and take with us from Matthew 7? First, we find joy in reminding ourselves of his promises. His promises will produce joy. Second, we seek the Lord in the everyday by, just like it says in John chapter 15, staying connected to the vine. And then lastly, during seasons of seeking him in desperation, God hears us and he's with us.